Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another and impacting the world. Well, greetings everyone. It's good to see you all. After camp, I can see some of you are a little bit tired, but it's uh, good to have you all here. Anyway, for those of you who weren't on camp, you missed a great time. Looking forward to seeing you next year. Um, Don't feel too let down. Uh, I'm sure all your friends will tell you all about it (laughs) over tea and coffee after the service. Guys, we're in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel, and we find ourselves in chapter 18 from verse 1 to verse 15, 1 Samuel chapter 18. It's on page 445 of my Bible, but that means nothing to you. (laughs) As you turn there, I have to fire up my laptop. I have a printing issue, and so I'm not able to have printed out notes. I'm hoping that this isn't going to create massive complications as we try and get through this text. I think maybe to settle my heart and yours, let's bow our heads and pray to Almighty God. Father, we recognize that this isn't a human activity that we are about to engage in. It's not a human activity for me, Lord God. I trust in your spirit for preparation, for delivery, even for results. And it's not a human activity, Lord God, for anybody that's seated here this evening listening in. For indeed, unless your spirit moves in hearts, how will we believe? How will we be transformed? How will we be converted? It's not going to happen short of your spirit moving within us. And so, Lord God, I do pray, would you be so good as to give us a measure of your spirit, would you be so good as to allow us to see Jesus? And would you be so good as to transform the lives of those who believe that we might glorify you in this life, even as we will one day glorify you forever in the life to come? I pray these things in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, as, uh, as Charles opened, I can't remember if it was in prayer or if it was just an introduction. Uh, he said that he hoped that the, the service tonight would be a challenge to you. The, the service tonight has certainly been a challenge to me in terms of preparation. And it's been a challenge for me in terms of preparation for this reason. I, I have a conviction. And I hope that you have a similar conviction. It's a little bit of a detour from our text. But hopefully it will explain the end, the conclusion, the application of the passage this evening to one degree or another. Let me tell you very simply what the conviction is, and let me tell you where the conviction comes from, and then I'll tell you why this text was a challenge for me this evening. The conviction is this. I believe that every passage in Scripture, right from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through to the end of the book of Revelation, every single passage ultimately points us as the readers to the person of Jesus Christ. And in particularly, to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So it doesn't matter if you're in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, which my wife and I were reading this morning. Every time we read a passage of Scripture, 
we are trying to figure out how does this passage legitimately get us to the person of Jesus Christ. Now that is my conviction. Let me tell you where I find that conviction or draw that conviction from. It's from Luke chapter 24 when Jesus appears to his disciples. And in Luke chapter 24, when he appears to his disciples, this is just before he ascends into heaven. This is his final command that he gives to his people. You might say this is the most important stuff that he could get at the very tail end of his message. He says this in verse 44. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds, greatest Bible study ever, and uh, to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem and ending even here in Pretoria. Now the conviction is that Jesus is at the center of every passage. We have but to find him, seek until we find him. And the conviction comes from this passage where Jesus says, listen here, everything in Moses, everything in the books of history, everything in the Psalms, all of it ultimately pointed to this. And then he gives him the gospel that Christ died, that Christ rose, And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins must be proclaimed to all nations. Now, that's the conviction. That's where we get the conviction from. What's the challenge? Well, the challenge is, as you come to 1 Samuel chapter 18, it is a story about a man named David. And you go, well, that's great. Everybody likes stories about a guy named David. Unfortunately, it's not the favorite story about the guy named David. Jabu had that last week. That was David and Goliath. This is another story about David. It's not just a story about David. It's a story about David and Saul. So there's a little bit of um, additional information in the story that we're going to be covering tonight. But it's a story of of intrigue, it's a story of jealousy, and it's a story of popularity, and it's a story of all kinds of things, but the question and the challenge is, where is Jesus in this passage? Now, I want to show you Jesus in this passage tonight, which means that we need to go through the passage and understand the passage, and then I want to take us in a legitimate way to see Jesus Christ, who I believe ultimately this passage points to. And I'm hoping that in pointing you to Jesus in this passage, you'll be challenged. So let's take a look at 1 Samuel chapter 18, beginning from verse 1. Hear God's word. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul... The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. So that Saul sent him over, set him over the men of war. 
And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of the, all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands. And to me, they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul. And he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand and Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people and David had success in all his undertakings for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David for he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, yeah, is my elder daughter Merab I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, who am I that, and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Mehalathite, for a wife. Now, Saul's daughter Michal loved David. And they told Saul and, the Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she might be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delight in you and all his servants love you. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law since I'm a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, Thus, and so did David speak, and then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David bought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. 
And Saul gave him his daughter, Michal, for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul so that his name was highly esteemed. Just so far in the reading of God's word. Let's go through this text now to understand it in its context, what it meant to the people it was written to then in order that we might then in a valid way come to Jesus Christ from this text. In 1 Samuel 17, I hope you remember from last week, David, the shepherd with the five stones and the sling, killed Goliath and, and led a great defeat against the Well, he led a great victory, right? A defeat for the Philistines, a victory for the Israelites. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, David's success and his popularity are just going to continue to grow and grow and grow along with Saul's jealousy, which is going to spiral and spiral and spiral. In fact, that's going to be the theme as we go through the rest of the book. David is going to increase and Saul is going to decrease, but not in a good way. Saul is going to decline to the pit of Sheol and David is going to climb to the throne of the kingdom of Israel. In the text that's before us from verse 1 to 4, you can notice that David is loved. David is loved. He's loved by Jonathan. Jonathan, the the king's son, makes a covenant, a promise with David, a a promise which greatly honors David. And he doesn't just greatly honor David with a covenant and with a a show of affection. He honors him with his stuff. He gives him his cloak and he gives him his, his armor and he gives him his sword. He gives him the symbols of royalty, if you will. And you will see in the very next verse, the first half of verse 5, that David is incredibly successful. Uh, In the campaigns of of war, uh, he grows to command men. The rivalry between Saul and David in 1 Samuel chapter 18 is being played out against the backdrop of an ongoing conflict between the nation of Israel and the Philistines. And they're going to pop up again and again and again as we go through the rest of the book. Not only is David loved, not only is David successful, but David in this text is very, very popular. We read that in the second half of verse 5. It says that, This was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of all of Saul's servant. David is popular with the people of Israel. In fact, this opens up so good. This opens up so great that that I titled it um, uh, in terms of my own mind's eye that God's chosen one is, uh, the notes aren't behind me, Uh, God's chosen one is exalted. The chosen one is exalted from verse one to five. In verse six, we begin with a comparison, a contrast between two men. On the one side, we have David, and on the other side, we have Saul. 
And we're going to see David exalted and we're going to see Saul descending toward defeat. In verse 6 it says, as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistines. David is returning from a victory and he's passing through all the cities of Israel on his way back to the, the royal keep. The women of each city are coming out and they are celebrating the victory of their warriors. And they're singing a number one hit tune. I mean, I don't know if it was quite Taylor Swift or whatever kids are listening to today. I, I'm not really very cool, so I don't know. Um, but, but, but it's not kind of like a, a chart topper in our sense. Uh, this would have been a spontaneous song that the crowd was whipped up with. Maybe a couple of the men heard it at one village, and as they came to the next, they started singing it. It was a catchy tune. It was a catchy phrase. People heard it. They enjoyed it, and it became the talk of the town. And it was this. Saul has struck down his thousands. I mean, any warrior would have been glad with a thousand. There might be a little bit of hyperbole here. Saul has struck down his thousands. David, his ten thousands. The idea is that this young warrior riding at the king's side is a great man and the victor of Israel. He is the celebrated victor of the moment. Now, here's the contrast. David is the celebrated victor, but Saul is the increasingly jealous king. Saul's initial response may have been, my new assistant is working out well enough. Everyone thinks I made a brilliant choice by bringing him onto the team. But that positive response didn't last long. As David's victories grew, Saul's jealousy of him grew too. In 1 Samuel chapter 19, Saul is going to plot to kill David. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, we understand that he is motivated here by jealousy. Saul eyed David. You get the impression of David on a horse maybe just in front of Saul. Maybe they're walking. I don't know how they did it in those days. But I'm, I'm guessing that the, the more important you were, the more likely that you were on a steed. But Saul is maybe a little bit behind David as they're coming through a village and the people are coming out and they've got tambourines and ribbons and they're throwing confetti and they are super excited because the battle has been won and they start singing these songs and Saul is hearing David's name over and over again and when he goes to sleep at night in his tent as they're heading towards the royal palace, over and over he hears David is great, David is great. And instead of giving God glory for raising up this young man at this time, to save Israel from the Philistines, Saul's heart grows cold toward David. What is jealousy biblically? Jealousy is envy. Somebody has something you want. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3, we read that you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, you are, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Being jealous indicates that we are not satisfied with what God has given us. In this text, David is the celebrated victor and Saul is the jealous king. 
this would be very easy to apply right now, right? Don't be jealous. But I'm going to leave application for the end so that we can connect it to Jesus. So let's go on to verse 10. In verse 10, it says the next day. I mean, this is, this is just escalating, by the way, and you're going to see that right now. A harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. The lyre, by the way, is like an instrument with many strings, I guess similar to guitars in our days. In this text, it starts off with Saul. Saul, a man possessed. Saul, a man possessed. Uh, this isn't the first time, by the way, that an evil spirit has rushed upon Saul. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, uh, we read that... In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14, we read, Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit of the Lord tormented him. This is a, a tormentation which is coming upon Saul. And so the young man David has been brought into his courts to play music to soothe him. Turns out that David isn't just good with a sword. <laughs> He's good with the guitar too and he has a sweet voice. In fact, as you go through the Psalms, many of those Psalms which were set to music were written by David himself. This shepherd boy who played music and was clearly excellent was brought in to soothe Saul when this spirit came upon him. And while the hand of the boy played an instrument, the hand of the king sought to do violence. This was premeditated murder. The demon might have prompted Saul, but Saul chose to throw the spear at David. And it wasn't an accident. I was just, I don't know, target practice against that wall and David happened to be around there. No, this didn't happen once, it happened twice. David was, okay, I'll move to that wall and Saul was, I'll give it another shot. The bottom line is Saul is a man possessed, but David is the people's commander. The text goes on in verse 13 to say that Saul removes him from his presence and makes him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people and David had success in all his undertakings. Saul has all the power. Saul sits on the throne. People have to obey the commands of Saul, but Saul is afraid of a shepherd boy with a harp. So David's, so he plots David's downfall. Move him away from the seat of power. Move him out of the royal palace. Get him as far away from power as possible. Contain David and you will have the power for yourself. But instead, David being relegated to the furthest end of the kingdom, David begins to win victories even where he has been placed. And instead of David having power wrested from him, David's success and love and popularity continue to rise throughout the country. Saul is a man possessed. David is the people's commander. Well, the text goes on in verse 17. The intrigue doubles. It becomes kind of like a bold and the beautiful moment. Then Saul said to David, Yes, my elder daughter, Merba, I will give her to you for a wife. 
Saul offers David his oldest daughter as a wife. And in this text, we see David, the humble servant. The act of giving a daughter in marriage as a reward for victory in battle reflects a cultural norm of the time. Uh, I mentioned right at the beginning that Liesl and I are in the book of Joshua, at the mo- no, Judges at the moment. But as we've gone through the Pentateuch and as we've come into the books of Judges, over and over again we've seen this, um, that as a uh, tribute, as a royal uh, exercise of grace and benevolence, a king might offer his daughter to the victor, to the best man on the field might get the best prize that a king has to offer the hand of his daughter in marriage to become a prince next to the king. Can you remember that Saul had actually promised to give his daughter to the man who killed Goliath? I mean, that was what David had been promised just one chapter ago. This is not a very long time later. Promises have been made to David in the past Promises have not been fulfilled to David in the past. And once again, Saul renegates on the deal. You can still have her, but now you need to lead the men in a dangerous battle to get her. In Saul's mind, he's thinking the spears of the Philistines might be sharper and sharper pointed than the spear I had in my court that I threw at David in a few verses previous. I tried to kill him and I failed. Let's now finish him off, but let's let them finish him off. Who am I, David asks. That's an interesting question given the fact that as we've been going through the text, David's a national hero. He is popular with the people. He is successful before the people. He is loved by the people, but David is still humble. He is the humble servant. Saul, on the other hand, is a scheming double-crosser. And we see that in verse 19. It says, But at the time when Merba, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel. And then there's one of those thought-ending tribal names that are so complex when you're reading through the Old Testament. Always get them a little bit fuddled around. Um, But he basically gave her to another man. Saul was not a man of his word. While he was happy to strike a bargain, he refused to keep the deal he had made. And so we've got this comparison again. David, the humble servant, and Saul, the scheming double-crosser. Well, the last story is again the bold and the beautiful. It's in verse 20 to verse 29, slightly longer this time, and it involves another daughter because the previous daughter didn't work. This time, however, the daughter turns out she loves David. I mean, what's not to love about David, right? He's big. He's victorious in battle. He's good looking. He can sing. (laughs) He can play the the guitar. He's in a band. (laughs) I mean, he's like everything that you want. And so Saul's younger daughter falls in love with David. And Saul sees in this just another opportunity. I mean, he's using his children as pawns in his game. He tells his servants to speak to David. The bottom line is to convince him that he wants his daughter, as much as Saul wants to give his daughter to David, he convinces him that, that, that he is the right guy for the moment. David says, well, look, even if I wanted her, I couldn't afford her. <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the lost son of a shepherd from 
Bethlehem. I, I can't afford this woman. But Saul comes back with a devious, masterful plan. Well, you don't have to pay any money. You can pay for it in lives. Lives of Philistines. You go out and kill 200 men with your own sword, basically, and bring back their foreskins, and you can have the hand of my daughter. Now, this is a bit gruesome. Um, I'm so glad that not all the details are captured for us in the pages of the Bible. But what we do know is this. As David went out and did battle with the Philistines, they would have hated him. Not only was he killing their friends and their family and their brothers, but he was defaming them. He, he, was, he was derobing them. He was defrocking them. I'm trying to think of the right word here. Um, he, was, um, he, he, was, he, was, he was absolutely, uh, I don't know what the word is right now. Um, but the bottom line is they would have been really, really upset with David. Now, before the time had expired, David arose, he went along with his men, and in verse 27, killed the 200 Philistines that were required and bought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. Saul is caught between the rock and a hard place here. I mean, the bottom line is, everybody knows the deal that he struck with David, and now David has fulfilled the criteria with the deal. Saul has to give his daughter's hand in marriage. But Saul, rather than joyful that he has got the best man in the kingdom as his son-in-law, looks at David with that evil eye and that evil intent and was even more afraid of David in verse 29. I want you to go one verse back because there is a terrifying reality going on in verse 28. It says, but when Saul knew that the Lord was with David, and that Milcah, uh, Saul's daughter, loved him. Saul was even more afraid of David. And so Saul was David's enemy continually. Did you see that? Saul knew that David was the Lord's man. And yet Saul still decided to be an enemy of David. On the one hand, we have David, the shrewd uh, fiancé. And on the other hand, we have Saul, the devious enemy. David, the shrewd fiancé, and Saul, the devious enemy. Where does this all end? Well, it all ends in verse 30, where it says, Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. I mean, the bottom line is, David, the chosen one of God, is exalted even further as we come to the end of the chapter. It is going well for David. It is a downhill spiral for Saul. Now, how do we get to the person of Jesus Christ? Because if we had to just teach this passage as, guys, don't be jealous and be popular, you know, don't be like Saul and be like David, you might walk out here thinking that you have gotten the main idea of what's in 1 Samuel chapter 18, but you will have completely missed the spiritual point of the text. In order to get to Jesus, we have to do a little bit of heavy lifting. I need to explain to you uh, right now what is a type and what is an antitype. In the Bible, an antitype is a fulfillment or a completion 
of an earlier truth revealed in the Bible. So if we go over here and we say an antitype is here, this is the fulfillment of a truth or something that was prophesied earlier in the Bible. Well, then a type which sits over here, a type is the foreshadowing of what is to come. And there are plenty of examples of types and antitypes in the chronology of the Bible. Let me give you one. Um, If you think of Adam, the first Adam, Adam in the garden, he was a type. He was a man created in untested perfection that was given the law of the Lord. But we know from the text that he sinned and rebelled against God, broke that law and was uh, rejected by him. On this side, we have the antitype, the fulfillment. This is the first Adam. Here's the second Adam and the last Adam, Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. He too was given the law. We read in Matthew chapter 5 that he didn't come to abolish the law, but came to fulfill it, every single jot and tittle. And in the end, he, instead of rebelling against God, did the will of God even to the point of death. The first Adam is the type. The second Adam is the antitype. Now the person of David in the scriptures, in the New Testament, is often used as a type of Jesus Christ, the antitype. Okay? Let me give you some examples of this. Jesus, uh, or let me say David, in 1 Samuel chapter 16 is anointed as king. Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 19 is the king of kings and lord of lords. David in 1 Samuel chapter 16 is described as being a shepherd, right? Jesus Christ in uh, John chapter 10 is the good shepherd. Uh, David in 1 Samuel chapter 17, we learn that he was born in Bethlehem. Jesus in Matthew chapter 2 in Luke chapter 2 is described as having been born in Bethlehem. On and on it goes. David was a man of valor, a warrior. Jesus in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 is described as a mighty man of valor, a warrior. uh, David conquered Goliath, the giant. Jesus Christ conquered the devil, triumphing over him on the cross. David was anointed of the God of Jacob. Jesus Christ is the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. David is the son of Jesse. Jesus is the son of David described in Matthew chapter 1 and in Mark and in Luke and in Revelation. David's son was to build a house for God. Jesus is restoring the falling tent of David and building his church, Matthew chapter 16. Over and over again, that's just a handful of the examples. Over and over again, Jesus is described as the antitype, the fulfillment of David being the type. What do we see in the text that is in front of us this evening. Well, this passage connects to the gospel by typology. Just as Saul was threatened by David's success and his success on rising popularity and out of jealousy tried to kill Jesus, the Jews were threatened by Jesus Christ's success. They were not just threatened by his success, but they were threatened by his rising success and his rising popularity. And out of jealousy, the Jews tried to kill Jesus. So we read in John chapter 11, verse 47, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs 
many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And he didn't say this of his own accord, but being high priest this year, that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. The bottom line is, just like Saul was jealous of David, just like David was successful with the people and po- successful in battle and popular with the people, so too Jesus Christ was successful in everything that he did and was gaining popularity with the people. And so the je- jealous Pharisees of his day conspired to kill him, and they did. But they were right. He didn't die for his sins. He died for the sake of the nation of Israel. He died for the sake of those who were scattered abroad. That's you and me. He died for us because our sins separate us from a holy God. You see, as you think of that story of David and Saul, the answer to us isn't a moralistic sermon. Guys, be more like David and be less like Saul because the reality is we can't be like David. We can't be like the greater David, Jesus Christ, who was perfect in every way. And all too often, we are exactly like Saul. Your sin might not be jealousy. Uh, There's so many people here tonight, and our sins might be so varied that your heart needs to tell you what your sins are as you stand before a holy God. But each and every one of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of our sin will be death. The moral of the story in 1 Samuel chapter 18, as we think of it through the lens of the cross, isn't be like David. It's you need Jesus Christ to save you from your sins. You need Jesus desperately. It means for those of you who are in Christ, that you can begin to live a life which is God-glorifying because Jesus has saved you from your sins. He has delivered you from them and empowered by the Holy Spirit, you can live a life where jealousy is, becomes less and less as you are progressively sanctified towards the image of Jesus Christ, God's Son. You can live a life of whatever sin you are presently dealing with, less and less because God is working in your heart and cleansing you that you might be like Jesus. It means that if you are sitting here this evening and you are an unbeliever, you have not yet placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, that I get to tell you that you can that his death has made reconciliation with God possible. And his life is the proof that God has accepted the payment of his own son. The wrath of God has been appeased. You have but to repent of your sins and cast yourself upon the finished work of Jesus Christ and you will be saved. When you think of 1 Samuel chapter 18, Remember that God exalts his chosen while the wicked descend into jealousy. And remember that as you apply that into your heart, if you are to be exalted in any way, it will only be because you are chosen in him who is the chosen one of God. 
Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father God in heaven, I do thank you for your word. It is faithful and it is true and it points us to Jesus and he is incredible. Thank you for him. Thank you for his beauties. Thank you for his glories. He is a treasure to behold. Help us, Lord God, to love him more and more that we might live our lives to his praise and to his glory. And I'll ask this in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.